Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich, also starring Sean Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're On Trial. Session, the Honorable Judge Fudge presiding. This is On Trial, brought to you by the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. And I am your host and your prosecutor for the evening, your mandator reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. Tonight, we start to close out Star Wars Week, our celebration of the newly released Last Jedi, the second part of the third Star Wars trilogy by looking back at the original sequel in the Star Wars trilogy, The Empire Strikes Back. I have the dubious honor of prosecuting this thing, which has been regarded as the best of the Star Wars movies. Um up till this point. Some might say that The Last Jedi uh, is actually the best of all the Star Wars movies, but until The Last Jedi came out, it was pretty much widely agreed that The Empire Strikes Back was the high point of the Star Wars saga. So trying to poke holes in that and slay sacred cows is going to be somewhat of a difficult exercise. Sean has the easy job tonight, of defending the Empire Strikes Back, and and what does one say in defense of something that is universally praised and loved? Though, interestingly enough, the Empire Strikes Back apparently uh, had had a mixed reception initially. I was reading that in the Wikipedia page, which I did not know, because I was very young when the Empire Strikes Back originally came out. So, kind of fascinated by that. Uh, So we'll go ahead and talk about The Empire Strikes Back tonight. We'll look at the the good, the bad, and the ugly, as it were. We are waiting for Sean to dial in. So while we're doing that, I'll just go ahead and give you the uh, the plot synopsis. And uh, when he finally does dial in, assuming he does, you know, strange things happen. Um... Then he can give you maybe some notes, and then we'll get to the prosecution and defense. The whole reason why we're here tonight. But The Empire Strikes Back takes place three years after the event Star Wars A New Hope. Of course, that ended with a farm boy uh, piloting an X-Wing down the trench of the Death Star and taking the one-in-a-million shot and blowing it up. This, of course, exposes the rebels on their hidden base in Yavin, which the Empire was set to destroy before Luke turned 
the whole thing around and blew the Death Star up. Well, the Empire is out for revenge, so they've driven them off Yavin, and they have been pursuing them across the galaxy. The rebels have settled on the ice planet of Hoth, and when we open the film, the Empire has found their base and is uh, set to pursue them there. Once the Empire, once the, re- the rebels realize that the Empire is on their way, they set about abandoning the base, uh, heading back out into space to try to find a, a new place to settle in and continue their uh, resistance against the Empire. What we also learn at the top of the film is that our Darth Vader is obsessed, obsessed, I tell you, with finding young Luke Skywalker. And we'll find out why as the film continues. Uh, we open up with Han and Luke riding their tauntauns around Hoth. They are putting up sensors so that the, the rebels will know when the Empire is near. Han gets his up and says, it's cold, I'm going back. Luke decides he's going to check out a meteor, which is actually not a meteor. It's a probe droid, an Imperial probe droid that landed on Hoth, and that's how they got found out in the first place. He goes to check it out, and along the way, he is attacked by a Wampa, which is basically the abominable snowman. Wampa kills the Tauntaun and eats it and hangs Luke up uh, in the cave, be devoured later. And apparently he, the Wampa likes to eat, you know, keep his meat fresh because he doesn't finish killing Luke at the time. Uh, Luke comes to, he uses the force to grab his lightsaber, he takes off the Wampa's arm and runs out into a blizzard. While uh, half conscious in the blizzard, he has visions of Obi-Wan Kenobi telling him that he will go to the Dagobah system where he'll meet Master Yoda and learn and continue to learn the ways of the Force. It is about that time that um, Han, who has gone back to the base, and what he tells us is in the inter- intervening three years from A New Hope to now, uh, he's been with the Rebels, he's been helping out, but they also ran into a bounty hunter, an Ord Mandel, um, Han still has a hefty price on his head from Jabba the Hutt, so he decides now is as good a time as any to go back to Jabba the Hutt and pay him off and get the bounty off of his head. Little little does he know that uh, Jabba is not going to be so forgiving, but you know we'll get to that at a later date. So he says he's leaving. Uh, Princess Leia is none too thrilled with the prospect of Han taking off. They get into a bit of a argument. Hours later, 3PO tells Han that Luke hasn't checked in yet. So Han, uh, since speeders are not ready, they are not adapted to the cold, uh, gets back on the Tauntaun and rides into the night to save Luke, which he does. Uh, and they make camp in the snow. He ends up uh, trying to keep Luke warm with dead Tauntaun guts. And they are saved the next day by the rebels who are out in their speeders looking for them. Um, Luke recovers. Han ends up staying a little while longer because it's not safe for him to depart the planet just yet. And that is when they realize that the Empire has uh, landed. 
the Empire actually comes out of light speed too closely. They blow the element of surprise, and the Rebels get a head start in trying to get off the planet. Um, a pitch battle ensues between the Empire, who leads a ground assault on the Rebel base, uh, against the speeders, who are protecting the remaining Rebels from getting off the planet. So we have the famous battle between the, the walkers, the AT-AT walkers, uh, and the AT-ST walkers, and the rebel speeders. Armor being, you know, this is basically a tank battle, you know, tanks against uh, small planes. And uh, the small planes are not able to penetrate the armor of the walkers, of the tanks, so they use harpoons and tow cables, because sure, why not? to trip the things up and make them fall down. And once they are down, they are able to find weak points and hit them and blow them up. Uh, unfortunately for the Rebels, uh, while they are able to get uh, mo- mostly get away, the base is infiltrated eventually by the Empire. Uh, Leia is not able to get to her ship, so Han gets her on the Millennium Falcon. And the Millennium Falcon uh, is in a state of disrepair, the hyperdrive. It has malfunctioned, and they have yet to be able to figure out how to fix it. So um, Han, Chewbacca, Leia, and C-3PO board the Falcon with the Empire in hot pursuit, um, and they are not able to use light speed to get away. So what ensues is a close-knit chase where the Millennium Falcon finally just drives into (laughs) or flies, rather, into an asteroid field uh, where the Empire, with their large uh, Star Destroyers, are loath to follow. They send in some TIE fighters, but ultimately the uh, Millennium Falcon is able to put some distance between them because uh, they, they can't get into the asteroid field. Meanwhile, Luke gets in his X-Wing, and instead of meeting up with the Rebels, he does as instructed by his dead master, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and goes to Dagobah to find the Jedi warrior, Yoda. Uh, Luke lands on Dagobah, bit of a mystery as to who Yoda is. This uh, strange midget frog-type creature shows up. He's an impish character. He's fighting with R2-D2. He's acting like a crazy asshole. Uh, Turns out he's actually Yoda. And so begins Luke's journey into the finer points of the Force, He is taught to uh, reach out and use the Force energy as his ally. He is shown that uh, Force users will have visions of the future and of the past, and this is where Luke starts to have visions of what's going to happen on Cloud City, which distracts him from his training. He also uh, has a temptation to the dark side, which he ultimately fails. This is, of course, the infamous cave scene where uh, he walks into the cave. Darth Vader's there. They have a fight. He kills Darth Vader, and Darth Vader's mask blows up, and it's a picture, and it's Luke Skywalker in the mask, uh, symbolizing that if he goes to the dark side, he will be killing himself. All right. So we go back to Han and Leia. They, are, they, they park themselves on an asteroid. They go about fixing the Falcon, Turns out they've parked inside of some sort of space worm, and they hightail it out of there before they are swallowed whole and digested over thousands of years. Oh, wait, that's the Sarlacc. 
Um, but yeah, they do escape the space space worm narrowly, and they're right back in the thick of it with the star destroyers. Still no hyperdrive. Uh, Hand pulls a slime maneuver where he just lands basically on the star destroyer, and the and the star destroyer can't sense the ship. The other star destroyers don't see it, and they wait for them to dump their garbage and then float away with the garbage. Uh, at this point, the Empire, uh, Darth Vader specifically, has hired a series of bounty hunters uh, to go after them, one of which is a smotty, it's Boba Fett, who figures out that the, that the Millennium Falcon was doing exactly what I just said and pursues them to their uh, next destination, which ends up being the mining colony of Cloud City, in the atmosphere of the planet Bespin. Cloud City is, of course, where Han's old buddy, gambler, scoundrel, you'll love him, Lando Calrissian uh, is the administrator. Uh, They have a reunion of sorts. C-3PO gets blown to smithereens while uh, wandering around and discovering there are stormtroopers there, but we won't find that out until later. Uh, eventually, Lando takes them to a dinner where, look who's coming to dinner. It's Darth Vader and Boba Fett. Uh, Han is taken prisoner and tortured. And then eventually, he's frozen in carbonite as a test of the carbonite freezing system on humans to see how it will work on Luke Skywalker. Uh, Boba Fett takes Han's frozen body aboard his ship Slave One, and heads off for Jabba's palace, which we won't see until the next movie. Leia, Lando, who had no choice in the matter, (laughs) Chewie, and the blown to smithereens uh, C-3PO head out in pursuit, but they are too late. They end up getting aboard the Falcon. The hyperdrive is still not fixed. Uh, um, They meet uh, Luke in the meantime, aborts his training because he can't get the uh, he can't get the vision of his friends dying out of his head. So he goes to Cloud City to save them. He is of course led into a trap set by Darth Vader. They have a lightsaber duel and Luke ends up momentarily getting the better of Vader, evading the whole carbonite trap in the first place. Uh having been embarrassed, Darth Vader turns up the heat and the violence starts using foreign objects to best Luke, and they end up fighting out onto a ledge where it is revealed, the big reveal, ladies and gentlemen, the biggest reveal in the history of Star Wars, that Darth Vader, the most evil, vile, violent man in the galaxy, is the hero's dear old dad. He's his father, has a a bit of a conniption, and uh, he is offered the opportunity to join Darth Vader by his side. Uh, he is lured in by the uh, by the dark side, and ultimately rejects it, throwing himself off the weather vane and uh, landing at, uh, at the landing at the bottom of Cloud City. He reaches out using the Force to Leia. Leia says, "Turn the ship around. Turn the ship around." And um, they rescue Luke. Luke is uh, nursed back to health. He is given a new robot hand. And uh, Lando and Chewie set about going after, finally going after Boba Fett. Well, Luke and Leia 
nurse their wounds and their pride aboard a medical frigate at the Imperial, at the rebel fleet. And that is where we leave the empire strikes back. All right. I'm going to go ahead and play some music here and see if I can find Sean. Sean still has not dialed in yet. We had agreed to go at 10 o'clock tonight. He's still out there in the world. So I'm going to go ahead and we'll take a uh, little break here. I'll see if I can find him, see what's going on, and then hopefully we'll be able to get back to the show. All right? So here, enjoy a little Galactic Empire.
John, are you there, sir? <laughs> a sleepy pants for the defense. For the defense. <laughs> Brett Van Winkle for the defense. Fantastic. How you doing, sir? Oh, it all started when I when eight o'clock rolled around, and I thought, I, I know, I'll I'll go take about a sixty minute nap. I'll feel better after that. I'll be okay with time to go on the air and talk about the movies. Ha! Uh, I learned absolutely nothing from every single time that I slept through classes in college. <laughs> Also, I will neither confirm nor deny that when sleepy, I sound like a mildly retarded Pete Puma. <laughs> you know how many lumps do you want? All right, here's what we've done so far. Uh, I've obviously in- introduced the show. I've gone ahead and done my plot synopsis. Um, do you want to go ahead and give some notes, or should we just get into this? Um, I'll just say real briefly that since there's so little to be said about The Empire Strikes Back, simply this is probably alongside, I would say, oh, Superman 2 and Aliens, probably one of the earliest big blockbuster examples of a sequel that manages to somehow outstrip the original in terms of action movies anyway, because I know that otherwise everybody else is going to say, you forgot the Godfather Part 2. Godfather Part 2 is better than the original. Yeah, I know. But we're just talking about action movies. Um, And reasonable minds will differ about why that is, but what's generally accepted is that George Lucas stepped back from being uh, extremely seriously hands-on to just working on the things that he's proven to truly be most consistently best at over the years, which is he was most directly involved with visual effects through his, at the time, recently expanded shop, Industrial Light and Magic, and uh, also taking taking more of an immediate hand in the financing role. Otherwise, uh, directing, he stepped aside so that he could uh, hand the reins over to, actually, I, oddly enough, one of his former film school professors, Urban Kirshner. Uh, he laid out the story, but he, he handed the ball for the screenplay mostly over to... Lee Brackett, and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark writer Lawrence Kasdan to really sort of really set things directly in cement. And, well, the results really speak for themselves in addition to being the most unanimously well-reviewed chapter in the saga up to that point. Uh, when it was released, it got mixed reviews from critics, at first, but it's sweepingly now regarded as not just one of the greatest science fiction films of all time or one of the greatest blockbusters, but just one of the greatest films, period. Empire ranked number three on their 2008 list of their 500 greatest movies ever. Um, It was the highest-grossing release of 1980 to date. If you factor in both the original run and its multiple re-releases, 
it's grossed more than 538 million um, in you know the uh, 10, 20, the 30, the almost 35 years since its release. Um, second highest grossing sequel of all time and the 13th highest grossing film ever released in North America. Um, and oh yeah, I stand uh, I stand corrected. 40. Uh, we're, we're actually coming up on 45 years since it came out. And there just isn't a whole lot there just aren't too many holes to punch in this. So, Mark, I I owe you a big one, buddy, for letting me close out the year on kind of a gimme. No, no, you, we stopped Jumanji to go. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. We still have Jumanji, as in you and I have Jumanji? Yes. Next week is Jumanji, the, the Robin Williams version. Oh yeah, we do. Eh, that's still pretty easy. It's it's hard to hate the original Jumanji. I mean, I I haven't I I haven't seen I haven't seen the um what are we calling this one? Are we are we calling it a direct sequel? Is is it is it a reboot? Just kind of a continuation? I think I, I, I think I don't know. I guess it's a, a reboot ish. I mean, it, it, it's got a slightly different premise. They're doing a video game that, rather than a board game, and it's totally new characters. So maybe, maybe an update of the concept. Oh, okay, yeah, there, there you go. Uh, the the rebookable update starring uh, Karen Gillian, <laughs> Jack Black, um, The Rock, and oh, holy crap. I have blanked on his name entirely. Um, oh gosh, um, God, Rob hates him. The Wee Man. <laughs> yeah. What's what's um, his name? I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Kevin something, but I don't even know if that's right. Yeah, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. Thank you. Yep, Kevin Hart. <laughs> you know the short one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and you could and you could tell how desperately I was trying hard not to not to not to say the little black man. <laughs> um, you know the wee black guy, the wee black, the wee colored feller. <laughs> All right. Um, well, that's next week. Let's stay on this week. Are we ready to uh, put this sucker on trial, sir? Are you gonna, you want to shake your sillies out, shake, uh, sh- shake the uh, the crust out of your eyes? You ready to go? <laughs> um, I just laid in bed for about fifteen minutes, deliberating whether it was probably showtime. <laughs> Doing that. <laughs> Actually, had I done a little less of that, I probably would have been slightly less late. So, no. All you, right, you, here you, we go. You go right. Yeah. Okay. Go right ahead. I want to present for my first bit of evidence uh, in the interest. You know, I'm, the, the, there's a saying, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but um, you know, if you can find somebody else to say it, better go with that. Um, I know that's not really a, that's really a saying. That's that's more of a concept. Um, I said I was going to butcher it, but I have here the 1980 review by Vincent Canby. The Empire Strikes Back strikes a bland note. 
and I and I and I want to read this to the audience because here's an example of somebody who was a little underwhelmed with what many consider to be the high point of the Star Wars franchise and still is in many people's eyes the highlight of the Star Wars franchise. Um, I'm going to skip this first paragraph here. It's just, you know, laying out sort of the foundation of, uh, of his review. But confession. When I went to see The Empire Strikes Back, I found myself glancing at my watch almost as often as I did when I was sitting through a truly terrible movie called The Island. The Empire Strikes Back is not a truly terrible movie. It's a nice movie. It's nice, but he's too big. It's not by any means as nice as Star Wars. It's not as fresh and funny and surprising and witty, but it is nice and inoffensive and in a way that no one associated with it need be ashamed of. It's also silly. Attending to it is a lot like reading the middle of a comic book. It is amusing and fitful patches, but you're likely to find more beauty, suspense, discipline, crafts, and art when watching a New York Harbor pilot bring the Queen Elizabeth II into her Hudson River birth which is what The Empire Strikes Back most reminds me of. It's a big, expensive, time-consuming, essentially mechanical operation. Gone from The Empire Strikes Back are those associations that so enchanted us in Star Wars, reminding us of everything from the passion of Jesus and the stories of Beowulf and King Arthur to those of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, the Oz books, Buck Rogers, and Peanuts. Strictly speaking, The Empire Strikes Back isn't even a complete narrative. It has no beginning or end, being simply another chapter in a serial that appears to be continuing not onward and upward, but sideways. How then to review it? The fact that I am here in, at this minute facing a reproachful typewriter and attempting to get a fix on The Empire Strikes Back is perhaps proof of something I've been suspecting for some time now. That is that there is more nonsense being written, <laughs> spoken, and rumored about movies today than about any of the other so-called popular arts except rock music. The Force is with us indeed, and a lot of it is hot air. Folks, that was written in 1980. Oh, how far we haven't come. My goodness, how prophetic. And anyway, ordinarily, when one reviews a movie, one attempts to tell a little something about the story. It's a measure of my mixed feelings about The Empire Strikes Back that I'm not all that sure I understand the plot. Okay, that's because there is no plot to this movie, which is a major problem with it. But I digress. Let's get back to this man's review. That was actually one of the more charming conceits of Star Wars, which began with a long, intensely complicated message about who was doing what to whom in the galactic confrontations we were about to witness, and which, when we did see them, looked sort of like a game of, of neighborhood hide-and-seek at the Hayden Planetarium. One didn't worry about its politics. One only had to distinguish the good persons from the bad. This is pretty much the way one is supposed to feel about The Empire Strikes Back, but one's impulse to know, to understand, cannot be arrested indefinitely without doing psychic damage, or worse, without risking boredom. This much about The Empire Strikes Back I do understand. When the movie begins, Han Solo and Princess Leia and their gang are hanging out on a cold, snowy planet where soldiers ride patrols on animals that look like ostrich kangaroos, <laughs> where there are white-furred animals that are not polar bears, and where Luke Skywalker almost freezes to death. Under the command of Darth Vader, the forces of the Empire attack, employing planes, missiles, and some awfully inefficient tanks that are the shape of armored-plated camels. <laughs> Somehow, Han Solo and Princess Leia escape. At that point, Luke Skywalker flies off to find Yoda, a guru who will teach him more about the Force. Yoda being the successor to Ben Kenobi, 
the Star Wars guru who was immolated in that movie, but whose shade turns up from time to time in the new movie, from what looks to have been about three weeks of work. <laughs> As Han Solo and Princess Leia wrestle with the forces of darkness and those of the new character played by Billy D. Williams, an unreliable fellow who has future sainthood written all over him, Luke Skywalker finds his guru, Yoda, a small, delightful Muppet-like troll created and operated by Frank Oz of The Muppet Show. Eventually, these two stories come together for still another blazing display of special effects that after approximately two hours leave Han Solo, Leia, and Luke no better off than they were at the beginning. Amen. I'm not as bothered by the film's lack of resolution as I am about my suspicions that I don't really care. I really don't care. After one has one's fill of the special effects and after one identifies the source of the facetious banter that passes for wit between Han Solo and Leia, it's straight out of B-picture comedies of the 30s. Oh, boy, do I have a lot to say about that. There isn't a great deal for the eye or the mind to focus on. Ford, as cheerfully nondescript as one with a comic strip hero to be, wish a comic book strip hero to be, and Miss Fisher, a sexlessly pretty as the pace of a porcelain lap, <laughs> become, is it rude to say, tiresome. One finally looks around them, even through them, at the decor. If Miss Fisher does more of this sort of thing, she's going to wind up with the Vera Ruba Ralston Lifetime Achievement Award. Google it, ladies and gentlemen. The other performers are no better or worse, being similarly limited by the not super material. How may one day become a real movie star? He doesn't. An identifiable personality, but right now it's difficult to remember what he looks like. Even the appeal of those immensely popular robots, C-3PO and R2-D2, starts to run out. In this context, it's no wonder that Oz's contribution to the rubbery little Yoda with the pointy ears and his old man's freeze of wispy hair is the hit of the movie. But even he can be only taken in small doses, possibly because the lines of wisdom he must speak sound as if they should be sung to a tune by Jimmy Van Hoosen. I'm also puzzled by the praise that some of my colleagues have heaped on the work of Irvin Kirshner, whom Lucas, who directed Star Wars and who is the executive producer of this one, hired to direct. The Empire Strikes Back. Perhaps my colleagues have information denied to those of us who have to judge the movie by what is on screen. Did Kirshner oversee the screenplay too? Did he do the special effects? After working tirelessly with Miss Fisher to get those special nuances of utter blandness to the end of the film, who exactly did what in this movie? I cannot tell, and even a certain knowledge of Kirshner's past work, Eyes of Laura Mars, The Return of a Man Called Horse, Loving, gives me no hints about the extent of his contributions to this movie. The Empire Strikes Back is about as personal as a Christmas card from a bank. <laughs> I assume that Lucas supervised the entire production and made the major decisions or at least approved of them. It looks like a movie that was directed at a distance. At this point, the adventures of Luke, Leia, and Hansel appear to be a self-sustaining organism beyond criticism except on a corporate level. Here, here, brother. All right. There's a lot to unpack there, and it's as good a place as any for me to start my criticism of this movie. Um, that, his comments about this has no plot rings very true. I've now watched this twice in as many days. And even back, uh, you know, watching it years ago, watching the special editions when they were re-released in the theaters, you know, there I went with my gaggle of friends, all super 
super fans of Star Wars who went to the Dome Theater in Seaford to uh, to relive 1980. Uh, by, I was almost four at the time. And I remember watching The Empire Strikes Back as an adult and thinking to myself, wow, I don't know why I like this so much. It has no plot. It, it opens mid, uh, mid-stream, and when it's over, it just kind of ends because two, two, two and a half hours have passed, and it's time for the movie to go away for a little while. He's absolutely right in the sense that nothing got resolved. You have, I mean, one could call the central conflict uh, that between Darth Vader and Skywalker the sort of thing that anchors and holds it together. And, but, you know, but is anything resolved between the two? You end up finding more about their relationship. You find out that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. So there's the huge reveal. But it, it it ends when Luke Skywalker takes himself out of the fight. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't, nothing changes. They're still on opposite sides of the fence. And, you know, there's more to come. The very definition of resolution is the situation has, has ended, has become solved in some way. It is resolved. Nothing is resolved between Darth and Luke. You, you know, it's resolved in Return of the Jedi. So again, you have this middle chapter that continues the story of the Empire trying to put down the rebellion. And because the focus is on, is on this small band of characters, I mean, you don't, we don't ever see what happens to the rebellion. That you see them at the beginning, they're abandoning Hoth as as the Empire comes to strike to strike down on them. And we have a skirmish, and then we never see the rebellion again until the very end of the movie. It's almost—it's like they—you don't even know they exist, except that there's a—you know—they—they they rejoin the fleet at the end when they're putting Luke's hand on him on the medical frigate. So, even the central conflict of the empire against the rebellion is abandoned to tell. One could call it a story. And I use that word loosely of what happens to Leia and Han on the one hand and what happens to Luke on the other. I want to talk a little bit about Carrie Fisher for just a moment. Carrie Fisher, I I think calling her utterly bland is is a little overdone as a criticism. I think Carrie Fisher did the best job she could with the material she was given. Here's the problem, and I say this all the time. It isn't the actor's fault that the material is shit. And Leia is a terribly written character in this movie. This is probably the height of my criticism with The Empire Strikes Back. Because I can almost forgive the lack of plot as the action happening on the screen is still somewhat enrapturing. You know, you're interested to see what happens to Luke when he goes to Dagobah. You're interested in the chase, the essentially two-hour chase between the Empire and the, the Millennium Falcon. So that's all well and good. But along the way, you have this female character, and let's, let's get right into her relationship with Han. 
I, I said during my plot synopsis that they make it. There's a there's a kind of a throwaway line that Han says that hey, there's still a bounty on my head, and I'm deciding to leave now because we ran into a bounty hunter in Ord Mandel, and that changed my mind. You know, he he. They made the point to say in the movie that even though he has spent three years with the rebellion, there's this huge price on his head, and it's time to pay the piper. If he, you know. He wants to go uh, on and be a free man. And, and I'm going through all this detail because it's, it's important to have this understanding to know why uh, Leia's character sucks and is not particularly believable. So again, you have Han who specifically says, I need to go pay off Jabba the Hutt or I'm a dead man, and I was reminded of that when we ran into a bounty hunter. Okay, that's not unreasonable. I mean, it's not like he's only spent a few minutes with the Rebellion. He spent three years with them after the Battle of Yavin. Enough is enough. If the man wants to go and pay off the debt that's being held over his head so that, you know, some urchin doesn't shoot him in the street, a la Omar from The Wire, everyone take a drink, it's not unreasonable to go ahead and let him. And whoever the commander is in the, in the one scene that he's telling all this to, reacts like a normal human being should. Princess Leia, first of all, gives him a dirty look when he walks into the room for no good reason. And then when he says he's leaving, she's like, all right, fuck off. I mean, make the jokes about women acting unreasonably and crazy, if you will, but this is beyond the pale. This made no sense. And no logical exchange between human beings to someone says, I need to go pay off my, the debt so that I don't get killed in the street. And someone says, all right, go to hell. Don't, don't abandon. Only crazy people respond that way. <laughs> okay? And that's the problem. is They made her into kind of a lunatic in this movie. Just an angry, bitter lunatic. Which would make some degree of sense that they referenced that she was still having difficulties with the with the... Uh, blowing up of Alderaan, but it's not referenced. You can't, you can't make that assumption. It's as if that event never even happened. So you have no idea why she's acting like an unreasonable bitch at the start of this thing. And they go on to have this discussion later on, you know, in that scene where he's explaining to her, where you know, where he's where he's saying that even even he says she's acting unreasonable. And she's like, you would promise you were going to stay, blah, blah, yakety schmackety. And then it takes this weird turn where he's like, oh, the only reason why you want me to stay is because you love me. And then she acts as if loving a man is just the most oddest, weird thing ever. And then, of course, there's the stupid line about I'd rather kiss a Wookiee. And he's smart out. He says, oh, I can arrange that. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on this because this never ends. This never ends throughout the entire picture. She is a nag and a bitch through the entire rescue sequence on Hoth. She's a nag and a bitch when they're on the Millennium Falcon for no good reason. The man is trying against all odds to get them away from, you know, the large battle cruisers, the Star Destroyers, and, and she's just the whole time bitching at him. It's one thing when C-3PO does it. He's the comic relief. Why is she doing it? As if she doesn't understand that if they're captured, you know, that's a huge blow to the rebellion. 
considering she's a pretty important figure. And Han's most likely a dead man. Um, and this all leads, the zenith of this, all leads to Cloud City, where after spending all this time with Han and seeing him, you know, being put in carbonite, possibly being killed, she finally says, I love you. You know, everyone gloms on to that and is, especially Han's reaction, I know, oh, how cool. But let's, let's, let's leave Han alone for just a second and how cool the I know line is. And let's just focus on what right does she have to say that? What evidence is there in this movie that she feels this way towards him? She's basically called him an asshole for most of the picture and complained and then suddenly says, I love you when he, you know, when under threat. And it's, I'm not a robot. I get that it's romantic in a sense. It's just not believable. Not, not given her characterization for nine tenths of this movie. Um, why didn't Lando take Pan and Leia directly to Darth Vader? <laughs> it's a nitpick, but still it really bothers me. Somehow or other, let, let's look at the math on this. As the film presents a situation where the Millennium Falcon is attached to the Star Destroyer, they dump the garbage, and the Millennium Falcon flies away. And somehow or other, Boba Fett saw this coming and proceeds to follow them. And even though the Millennium Falcon had a head start to Bespin, there is, Darth Vader and company are able to uh, get there before they do and ambush them. And not ambush them on the landing pad, not ambush them when they walk through the door, but several hours later at a, at a banquet of sorts. Why? Like I, 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 you know, I'm willing to allow a certain degree of nonsense for the sake of creating an interesting scene, but let's, let's think about this logically. Why, why, why? Would Darth Vader wait several hours once they have landed for them to, you know, for them to set up this ambush? When Lando says, "I had no choice," they arrive right before you did. And, and let's look at that 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 sentence there. How they arrived right before you did? Well, there was enough time for them to strike up a deal and set up this ambush. So why not do it within a few minutes of them landing? It's it's just it's needlessly silly. Um, the last thing I'm going to complain about with this movie, and I, 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 and for years I just sort of accepted a lot of the Yoda-isms uh, without really thinking about them critically. But having forced to been forced to watch these movies with a critical mindset, I was listening to the sequence where Luke is abandoning his training to go save his friends, and let's let's think, let's look at what Yoda says. Yoda says, if you leave now, help them you could, but you will destroy all of which they have fought for. That doesn't make any sense. Help them you could, but you'll destroy what they have fought for. How exactly does that work? Think about it, 
right? It, it's a bit of a nitpick, but still, it really bothers me. That line in particular, if he helps them, well, then they're not captured anymore? <laughs> they're no longer in Darth Vader's clutches? So the implication, let me, let me get right to it. The implication is, is that Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda are warning Luke that if he goes to rescue his friends, he's going to be tempted by the dark side, and they're afraid that, you know, given the fact that his father uh, gave way to the dark side and became Darth Vader, so too will Luke. Which, well, I don't know why they just didn't tell him that. Again, again, creating needless mystery here. You know, let's not tell the poor kid as he's going off to, you know, and he's inevitably going to find out that Darth Vader is his father. Why not give him advanced warning so that he can arm himself against the possibility that the man's going to turn him, possibly? Nope, he'll figure it out on his own. Fuck him. <laughs> okay. It's an interesting strategy, especially when you're afraid Luke's going to follow right in his footsteps. But I was focusing on Yoda's stupid uh, advice. The implication is that Luke's going to turn uh, when tempted, which means he's not going to help his friends. There's no could there. Help them you could. Will you, to, to paraphrase Yoda, either you're going to help them or you're not. So I helped my friends, and while helping my friends, I suddenly turned to the dark side. Oops. It's a little inconsistent, just a smidgen. You know, and the whole that whole thing, like, Luke, I don't want to lose you the way I lost Vader. Hey, now's a good time to tell him why you lost Vader, how you lost Vader, and who Vader really is. So, um, and I don't even want to get into the whole Luke and Leia are related, and, you know, this is, we'll save that for when we put the Return of the Jedi on trial. Um, but that's it. I, I think... The, the, there's a bit of grit and darkness and empire that comes as refreshing in a series about space wizards and, you know, little warrior bears, uh, you know, the, the kind of stuff that came out of Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, you know, that the second chapter of this thing was so, you know, it was as serious as it was. So I think people put on nostalgia glasses and uh, raise it above the level that it really is. The Empire Strikes Back is fine, but it has its problems. It's ha it has its narrative problems, and it's important to call those things out. Your witness, sir. Okay. Uh, first off, gee, wow, golly and Jiminy Jillikers. I would really like to thank the prosecution for laying out the critical equivalent to a Christmas dinner made up mostly of microwaved entrees from Boston Market. Wow, really? You've spent like the first fourth of your criticism reading from someone <laughs> directly from someone else's review. Well done. <laughs> um, but I guess it's going to go point by point here. Let's start with, you know, your apparent esteemed colleagues, Rip, that this doesn't feel as much like the stories of Christ and Tom Sawyer, et cetera, et cetera, as the original did. Well, there's a reason for that. 
it's not bloody supposed to. Because for the time being, at that time, very few movies, if any, had ever taken a story that was basically a a by-the-numbers foundational interpretation of Joseph Campbell's hero's tale, or hero's journey, and really followed it up directly, um, kind of right after to display the evolution of the hero after that journey. It's, it's what happens next. It's a departure from those stories. It's both a continuation and a departure because one of the things that makes em- <clears throat> excuse me, Empire so interesting is that takes the familiar kind of story that we just have an innate sense is going to end with good triumphing over evil, and it shows us what happens when that isn't the end of the story. And when inevitably good has to take a loss and get set back on its heels and has to regroup, that's what makes this so damn fun. And that's what makes the, makes even the ending of it, which, yeah, while a downer, it lends an operatic note to the series, and it adds notes of tragedy notes of tragedy and adversity that you didn't really feel at the end of the first movie. The first one kind of ended everything tidily because obviously this wasn't the day when, you know, for example, a Netflix series comes out and the ink is already barely dry on the renewal when everybody is, is just 12 hours into their initial binge of it. This wasn't that time. This was this Star Wars, and I'm speaking in terms of A New Hope here, was experimental. It was revolutionary in that there was no guarantee this was going to work. It was unlike most of what theaters had seen up to that point. And there was, and it was, it was made on kind. Of, on kind of a tight budget, but it wasn't a sure thing for Lucas. It was a gamble. And ultimately, it ended up paying off. So for this, for the follow-up to that story and the lead-in to the remaining stories that he had in mind, it needed to strike a different tone. This wasn't meant to be a definitive resolution any more than a lot of other sophomore sequels nowadays are intended to. It's much like how X2, X-Men United is not a a definitive, one-off, all-encapsulating resolution to the X-Men story up to that point. Or how obviously Spider-Man 2 leaves everything on on a lingering thread. The Dark Knight ends tragically with unanswered with unanswered questions. Those all did exactly what this movie did first and what this movie did better up to that. And that brings me to the notion that this is plotless. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I'll grant. It kind of 
it kind of brings it brings you in having made a lot of assumptions on its own, namely the assumption that most of the people who were coming to see this sequel to to a, a groundbreaking, unheard of theatrical success that had been released prior had actually already gone to see the groundbreaking, unheard of theatrical theatrical release prior to this that sets all that sets all this up. It's meant to be made for people who saw the first movie, but just in case they didn't, okay, that's what the opening crawl is for. It maybe doesn't have the exact same impact, but Yes, it indeed assumes that if you're seeing this, you've already gone to see the other one. I don't think that's entirely unreasonable when you're indeed marketing this as a sequel. To have said, hey, just so, just so you know, the story makes a lot more sense if you've seen this other thing that came first. We're just, we're just telling you ahead of time, you know, you, we really hope you've gone to see this See this one first, because that's where he's setting the bedrock for this for this whole story. It's continuing that. I don't know what to tell you if you went into this one unaware of that. But even then, it does still manage to tell a story of character evolution among the principles. Um, Luke has gone from being an obnoxious, whiny, fresh-faced farm boy to now being a, remem- a member of a high-stakes, ongoing galactic rebellion who is faced with the continuation of an, of an unclear destiny and continuing his training to truly, as he claimed, as he claimed he wanted to in the first movie, set out to become a Jedi like his father. Han and Leia are both changed. Leia has gone, well, she's evolved further, I should say, from being simply a, simply a monarch to now having to be the, the, the military leader, both kind of in 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 practice and kind of as a figurehead of the rebellion and the and devil make hair han solo has all of a sudden gone from being a scruffy roguish smuggler to now being someone that people depend on someone who is who is looked to as being kind, as being kind of a backbone of something that's bigger than him and all the while, as my colleague pointed out, throughout all this time, yeah, he, he still got that unresolved bounty on his head, the unfinished business of his old life that's just hanging there. And so it does leave you with something to go, no, no, I kind of want to see how this plays out, especially when it comes to the fact that there, there's clearly something romantic going between these two, but there's also something coming between them. And that's namely the fact that, yes, Han wants to resolve this so that he can, he can get the weight off his shoulders. He, so he can quit looking over his shoulder for being honest. And he clearly feels something for Leia, obviously. But at the same time, 
yeah, you're right. Leia is a bit of a shrew. It's because she's still processing the fact that her home planet has been obliterated. And she feels her own need to continue taking the fight to the Empire. And this guy, on whom so much of that fight is dependent, wants to just go and walk away. And no, I don't think it's unreasonable for her to be kind of incredulous that he wants to. Because the, the other way she could have gone about this was saying, okay, you're afraid of the bounty hunters and, and the big bad gangster who wants, who wants your head. Okay, I got that, but look around you. you. You realize we got a lot of guns, right? Lots of guns, lots of ships, lots of military armaments. We, we could have your back with that. Just stick with us here because we need you. There, there's a price on your head, but all of our lives and other, and other faceless lives that also hang in the balance here because we're talking about intergalactic freedom. We're talking about the notion of if, if this falls down, there's nothing that holds the Empire's fist back from tightening down on the entire galaxy. You realize that, right? So that really should have kind of, kind of resolved most of that Right there, but the most the most satisfying part of that character development is the fact that Leia is humanized. She is taken far beyond the archetype by the fact that yes, she feels something for Han. No, she doesn't express it until the last minute, and you can really read the regret that Carrie Fisher carries across on her on her face during that scene. But at the same time, again, she's balancing that against something that is bigger than her. In a way, they're polar opposites. Han is trying to put his personal stakes ahead of the, great, ahead of the greater cause. Leia has no choice but to put that greater cause ahead of what? Ahead of something that's clearly in her heart. You know, it's it's watching these characters be taken out of their comfort zones that really lends a lot of meat to what is otherwise a, a pretty both simplistic and divided, divided plot. Because on the one hand, you've got Luke journeying to Dagobah to continue his training, and then you've got Han, Leia, Chewie, 3PO, and R2 trying to make a clean getaway from, from the Emperor to Bespin. But I'll come back to that. Because in keeping going down my notes, there was a complaint there was a snide little complaints about the creatures. Okay. What part of galaxy far, far away didn't quite translate into English? Which part of that didn't make it into this critic's native tongue? No. Sorry, you're not going to find going to find ocelots and llamas and jug bands fronted by otters <laughs> twaddling around. They're going to look strange because they're creatures from 
long ago and far, far away. They're going to be different. You understand that this isn't all taking place like somewhere between Phoenix and Salt Lake City, right? Or since we're talking about Haas, like the far reaches of northern Minnesota. This, this chump stain gathers that, right? So there's a little bit of room for creative license there. But if we're to kind of keep moving keep moving on because there's there's really not a whole lot from you know the mincing C3PO to my bold plucky R2D2's argument to continue dissecting here there was the complaint about the late the late um springing of the ambush at Bespin being somewhat of a plot hole uh no, maybe they kind of instructed Lando to play cool as a freshly chilled can of Colt 45 and lure them in with a false sense of security and to not make them think that something was up so that they wouldn't raise all manner of holy hell and get away before the Empire could snare them. And also, I'm just not generally going to complain about something that... You know, really, when you think about it, this is exactly what establishes Darth Vader as one of the as one of the all-time great cinematic baddies of all time. Here, you have a father who undergoes pretty much this line of reasoning. So here's what I'm planning. I'm going to I'm going to stick my son in suspended animation for pretty much just about as long as I damn well please. But I don't want to leave anything to chance. So first, I'm going to convince his best friend's best friend to betray him so that I can test it on him first, right in front of, front of the also-captured monarch that I've been pursuing since the previous movie. She's going to witness all of this pretty much firsthand. It's going to happen all right before her, before her very eyes. Damn, dude. And even, and even in spite of all this, he still ends up lopping his baby boy's hand off. But really about the only thing I've got left is the complaint about the Yoda thing, which, quite frankly, no, I got nothing. That really could have been executed better, couldn't it? <laughs> I mean, that, that was really just kind of almost ambiguity for ambiguity's sake. Uh, it's a nearly perfect movie, which is still a lot better than a lot of sequels up to that time had been. And really what we have here is we have mostly the complaints of somebody going to see a movie that, if I may be a little bit pithy here, wasn't fucking made for them. And speaking in terms of the, of the initial review that was read at the start of the prosecution's case, 
if anything, that is that is some ancient bullshit ancestor to all of the high-minded critiques of a lot of kind of nerd-oriented movies of today. You know, just, a, just a whole lot of people going into a movie and writing a review and making everybody else who's everybody else who saw it and was excited for it wonder, what exactly were you expecting? I mean, seriously, you're you're pretty much complain complaining at a movie for not being something that it was never intended to be. Yeah, it didn't provide a sense of a sense of closure. It's called a cliffhanger. Even prior to this movie, old Tiny Times radio serials would do that. It was how they got you to tune in each week. Professional wrestling had been doing that. Pulp novels did that. Comics did that. It's not supposed to be a complete story. It's supposed to be the middle act that makes you go, okay, and then what? Then what happens next? The hell do you mean I have to wait for the third movie? Okay, fine, I'll wait for the third movie. <laughs> it did its job. It did its job masterfully. It set everything right up for Return of the Jedi to knock it right the hell down. But I can even kind of forgive that because, again, we were used to movies that were telling the hero's journey and then just kind of left it at that. This was not the golden age of the sequel at this point. And even then, if you think of the other two movies that I compared this to in, term, in terms of its uh, success, if you think of it in terms of, say, Aliens and Superman 2, those movies wrapped everything up on a fairly tidy note and didn't leave a whole lot of sequel baiting in their wake. Again, this this didn't this didn't do that because what you have to have is if you had made this movie and you had simply had the Re the Rebel Alliance triumphing absolutely and completely in the end, well, then you've got the problem that there's no longer any reason for anybody to fear your bad guys anymore because you basically established a pattern that they probably aren't going to win. Whereas on the other hand, if you somehow decide to end it with the with the empire um, attaining decisive decisive victory, and just leaving everybody to assume, oh, yep, that's where the story the story ends. Bye, thanks for your money. Well, then you have the problem that that's kind of a downer. That's not really very, really very satisfying. Just that's the way it ends. These characters that I'm already so invested in over the course of two movies, just that's it. They, they lose once, they lose once and for all. That sucks. 
Who wants to hear? Who wants to hear that story? Generally speaking, yeah, you'll you'll find a few minor complaints with this one. It's it's why YouTube channels like Cinema Sins exist, but overall, there isn't a whole lot that you can objectively point to, aside from just pure matters of individual taste, in order to say this is quintessentially a bad movie. There's just nothing there. You're welcome you're welcome to try, but well good luck and aren't there other movies even in this very franchise that are more worthy of worthy of that kind of attention? I think there are. Your witness. I'm just going to remind the defense of something he told me during our Catwoman uh, prosecution and defense, and that is, if I kick you in the balls, um, something along the lines of if I, you know, if I if I shot you on Monday, uh, and then you know kick you in the balls on Wednesday, sure, it's better than kicking. It, it was better than shooting you. But it, you're still hurt. It's still it's still a terrible experience. We're talking shades of terribleness sure at this point. What I said. I remember kicking in the balls. <laughs> but your point was. You're normally a little more tidy than that. <laughs> it's late. Shut up. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> It was so, dude. The point that you were driving home was bad is bad, even if you know, even if it's just a little less bad uh, than something else. And I was listening to your defense of this, and I, and and I kept coming back to that. You know what's funny to me is your explanation of what Leia could have said to Han, which would have made those in, those exchanges on Hoth. Uh, and then later on through the movie, work a lot better, were much more poignant and made, and made much more sense than what was actually said in the movie. And you don't get points for rewriting the screenplay mid-podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Um, what, what happened in the movie is what we're going to judge this by, and what was in the movie wasn't good. The, the exchanges between Han and Leia left a lot to be desired. I get you're inferring a lot, and... Uh, and I liked what you had to say. And next time, maybe they should get you to write some of the dialogue of the characters. But that's not what happened. What we got was, I don't know what you're talking about. And Han, I thought you had decided to stay. And we need you. I don't know what you're talking about. She never says any of the stuff that you said. She never even comes close. Um, that, that's it. I, I don't have a whole, I don't want to belabor certain points. Uh, I get the sense you didn't like me reading the, <laughs> the review. Uh, you, you seem to be have you, you seem to have your nipples tweaked a little by, by my doing that. I don't know if it was the tactic I, I was, itself or, well, or I was, what I chose to read. Well, I, I, I was, I was, I was debating making a point by pulling out my handy little handwritten recipe book here and reading off my process for making a from-scratch Alfredo. <laughs> okay. 
Um, look, I read it because I thought he made a lot of a, a lot of salient points. I also thought it was. I also wanted to drive home the point that, and this is relevant now. Um, two things. One, if you want to look at a movie that's the middle chapter of a series, but resolves a lot of the conflicts and sets up new ones uh, for the ne- for the next chapter, go watch the Last Jedi. Uh, we've talked about it ad nauseum this week. I don't want to talk about it anymore, especially on a podcast where I'm supposed to be talking about The Empire Strikes Back. But the comparison yeah, and couldn't be more. Yeah, and to see that on Christmas Day, thank you. Okay. Well, I, I, I definitely don't want to spoil it for you then. But The Last Jedi does a Thanks. better job of resolving the central conflicts than The Empire Strikes Back does. And But more to the point... Um, I... I I I look at the uh, the Empire Strikes Back and yeah, you know, in comparison to the uh, um, you know what I liked what the guy had to oh yeah okay I don't know where I was going with this sorry lost lost my lost my point for just a moment all right I'm back. A big part of what's come out of, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying this, but a big part of what comes out of the, the discussion of The Last Jedi was how it, in a, in, in a lot of ways, deconstructed the Star Wars franchise. I won't say anything more about it than that. It is accepted, beyond all reasonable doubt, that The Empire Strikes Back is just the best thing in the Star Wars universe, and, and, and to say otherwise is heresy. And I like the fact that this guy in 1980, for better or for worse, gave what I thought was a salient argument as to why it's not as great as everyone thinks it is. Now, there's tons of that, as Sean pointed out, on YouTube. The, you know, who, who doesn't have a show these days that either tells you everything great about a movie that's really stupid or everything terrible that was gen- that, about a movie that was generally accepted as great? There's only a million of those shows. But, you know, The Empire Strikes Back is one of those that really stands above, in, in people's eyes, stands, stands head and shoulders above everything else. And, like, no, you know, like, this is clearly not a Star Wars. This is clearly not a Star Wars fanboy. This is, and as much as we like to pick on professional reviewers, I don't think they were as terrible as they are now <laughs> back in 1980. And this guy doesn't come across as, as bad as some of the ones that Rob and I read on Damn You Hollywood when we do the, the Rotten Tomatoes bit. So... I think that's important. I think it's important to look at some of our sacred cows and, and, and knock them off their pedestal and say, no, here's where they have some problems. And whether you agree or disagree with some of the points that I brought up, as Sean pointed out, a lot of this does go, does go back to taste and personal opinion. I don't think it's the world's weirdest opinion that there's some stuff very, very wrong with The Empire Strikes Back. Maybe not as wrong as The Phantom Menace or The Return of the Jedi, but wrong is still wrong. A kick in the balls is still a kick in the balls. The defense rests. Yeah, I think we picked the wrong Star Wars movie to dissect. <laughs> um, I wanted to challenge. Uh, to be honest with you, Sean, it, 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 I, I really wanted to see what was possible if you looked at this thing super critically. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't Thank think you. we did a bad job of analyzing it. If you if you really reach and and if you really decide to take the movie to task, 
for not spelling some things out quite as explicitly as it could have. I'll I'll grant that. Personally, I kind of like the fact that neither Han nor Leia says what they really think because they don't really want to show that they're letting emotion get too much in the way. It could be just um, the characters they're enable they're unable to. You know, that's the thing. Well, exactly. Yeah, that that the, too. Um, and. That to me, I'm I'm fine with that. I'm I'm very much o- I'm very much okay with that. I don't think that's something that it's really worth it to take something to task for. And again, I can't. I tried, and I couldn't think of too many movies or series at that time that had gone the route that this one did in terms of take the characters to new places, take them to to new levels emotionally and then end the movie with them having survived the adventure, but clearly having lost something along the way. So I I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that just kind of subverted critical expectation to that point so much that it was seen as a negative, but no, you don't, you don't think think that, you don't you you don't think that the Star Wars franchise in and of itself gets blown up uh, well past its actual uh, its actual critical standing its actual um, I don't know how how quite to put this but I I, well, I sometimes you, get the feeling say- go ahead. I was going to say when you, when you say blown up past, you mean exactly. All right, let me explain it this way. Have you ever seen the documentary "The People versus George Lucas"? Um, I know it exists, but to be honest, I've never really had any interest in seeing it. Okay, in fifty words or less, and I'm really I'm going to be brief with this because I want to end in the next two minutes, if we can. Okay. Uh, the People versus George Lucas is about. George Lucas's uh, opinion, and rightly so, that this is his vision, these are his movies, he is the artist, and he is at liberty to present what he wants to present and tell the stories he wants to tell, versus the fans of Star Wars who have taken ownership of the property and make demands, sometimes crazy demands, that he tell the stories they want. And this has drawn them into conflict. Regardless of whether or not you think the, tr- the prequel trilogies are well-made movies or not, the central conflict between Lucas and the fans is those aren't the stories that we all wanted, and that is the story he wanted to tell, and that creates this huge problem. And when I say blown up past, I, I'm, I'm looking at the fan side of this thing where – They've taken ownership of it, they, we. We've taken ownership of it. We've infused what we think it should be. And if you take a step back from uh, your own fandom, not you, Sean, personally, but in general, our own fandom, and just look at them as movies, not as these cultural events or these meaningful parts of our childhood, are there not glaring flaws in these movies? 
you know, I look at somebody like Robert Winfrey, who's not a fan, who's really able to look at them critically, sometimes a little harshly, and see that there's some pretty, pretty massive problems with all of them to one degree or another. Um, is it not fair to point those things out? Well, it's a fine line that you're walking sometimes when it comes to something that is transcendently popular as the Star Wars property. Um, Because I want to put this kind of carefully because I want to make sure that I get this right on the first shot. You're talking about something that started off as a, a little movie that could, so to speak. Something that Lucas acknowledged had at least a 50-50 chance of absolutely not panning out critically or commercially and being, the, and being his one chance to probably ever get to make the movie that he really wanted to make. And I mean, hell, that's that's one of the reasons why uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye was was written. The the kind of uh, the flagship Star Wars EU novel, and that was because it was meant to be a sequel to what we just know today as A New Hope, in case that tanked at the box office as a way of continuing that story. But when it comes to something that accrues, a, again, a then unprecedented fan base like what Star Wars did, you don't owe a total duty to the fans to just strictly give them what they want because, hell, in that case, if if that had been the way things were, I imagine Lucas would have probably just gone, just gone ahead and just continued the cinematic arm of the arm of the property with more of the EU stories instead of going with the prequels. But at the same time, if you want to keep them coming back, you know, you, you kind of have to do your best to respect what they want. Now, are Star Wars fans un can Star Wars fans be goddamn unruly? Oh, you fucking bet they can. Oh yes. Um all you have to do is just to just look to the pants on head nanners outrage at the fact that Disney just took the EU just straight the fuck out of canon to have that laid bare before you. Um, do you have to necessarily be an absolute slave to that? No, you don't. But there's a difference between where Lucas is or that or that's how the past tense was with his hands-on approach to the Star Wars franchise and, say, someone like Kevin Smith being able to go out and say, okay, I've made all the big studio movies I want to. I've gone out and I've made the movies for 
the movies for money. Now I have not only the creative freedom and resources, but I have the funding resources to go out and just make strictly, absolutely, unapologetically the movies that I want to make. That's how we got movies like Red State. That's how we got how we get we got uh, the Great White North trilogy. You know, Tusk, Yoga Hosers, and Moose Jaws. Because he had that he had that kind of freedom and he recognized that. When it comes to Star Wars, not just Lucas, but anybody who takes the reins of it, and that includes J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson, you have to be a little bit a little bit beholden. And you have to approach it with a little bit of with a little bit of a fine touch. But only up to a certain point because there's also a need to acknowledge I am never going to completely win with you guys. You know, I if I if I try to do something completely original, you're going to take me to task because some way, somehow, it didn't feel like a Star Wars movie to you, or it didn't include this, or it didn't, or it didn't include that. On the other hand, if I try to adhere too closely to the structure of what I know based on experience and reviews and box office take and everything else you already enjoy, well, then you're going to rip me a new one because I didn't take enough chances and I didn't tell a fresh enough story. And that's not just that, – that isn't just Star Wars. That's all kinds of licensed properties. There's always going to be somebody who is going to come out and find some way to complain about it. It's become almost kind of a hipster thing to do with some movies. Take whatever the big popular blockbuster is at the moment and then come out with some ball-busting argument behind why it was, an a, it was an absolute flop. You'll find it for almost any given franchise, from Star Wars up to the MCU. Somebody will complain about something. It's, it's kind of the lingering curse of channels like, like CinemaSins or like... Um, uh, What's the rhythm uh, like, Mr. Plinkett, and and review shows like shows like that? They're meant to be somewhat satirical piss takes, even of stuff that they actually objectively like. But people go and take them way too damn seriously. And no, there, there are very few perfect movies out movies out there. Virtually, virtually none. Has Star Wars been hijacked? Yeah. To a certain extent, I I honestly believe it has. Again, I haven't I haven't seen the last the last Jedi yet. I'm actually looking forward to Monday. Um look like I like I goddamn can barely sit still excited about it. But we heard this also when The Force Awakens came out. I enjoyed it. I loved the I absolutely loved The Force Awakens. I uh, and yet there were people who complained, oh, it's too much like it's too much like a new hope. 
I don't know. I guess I just don't see the see the point of actually complaining that something is too much like something else that like something else that's really widely acclaimed and that I know I enjoy. I mean, it's it, it's kind of lost on me because I hear it I hear it far too often because I think audiences in general far overestimate the notion that there's anything completely new under the sun. <laughs> so, anyway. All right. Um, I thought, like I said before, I uh, I thought this was an interesting exercise. Um, I don't know if I would recommend taking the show in the direction that we take impossibly hard movies to criticize and continue to try to, but every once in a while it's good to it's good to stretch the old uh, verbal skills, debate skills, etc. Uh, next week should be a lot easier. <laughs> next week should be ridiculously easier by comparison. Uh, we're going to do the uh, on the 28th of December. We'll be looking at the Robin Williams, Jumanji. Sean's going to prosecute, and I'm going to defend. And then that's it for this year. In January, we kick things off uh, on Tuesday, January 9th. And, you know, On Trial is going to be the wandering show of, of 2018. It's going to be on Tuesdays. and uh, Some Tuesdays, it's going to be on some Thursdays, depending on how, um, how full the week is. We're going to do our first show, which is uh, Zack Snyder's 300 on uh, Tuesday the 9th. And then our next show will be on the 30th of January, and that's Sean's pick. I'll be anxious to see what uh, what Sean picks. Sean, Sean, you always pick some real fun ones, some ones that uh, are a little off the beaten path, ones I don't always expect. So I'll be curious to see what you come up with. I got uh, I got a few ideas. But uh, nothing I've nothing I've settled on complete completely yet. Uh, I, I haven't. I meant to kind of get her out of that this week, but then I had some developments um, in terms of me getting home to Phoenix that kind of took my attention away from it for the time being. And I just never quite got back. Also, well, I certainly. A lot of aspects. I was gonna say, well, life is important, and certainly getting back to Phoenix, uh, I. Uh, would take pre- certainly takes precedent over figuring out what we're, co- what we're going to do, what we're going to argue over this week. So, uh, well, we'll figure it out. We certainly have another month, obviously, to, to get it done, get it on the calendar. So, um, you want to go ahead and plug anything? Yeah, sure. Just a couple quick things. Uh, first off, as I always like to say every single week, thank you very much to everybody who listens at any listens any way you choose to. We always greatly appreciate it, and please know that we welcome your feedback anytime and any place you would like to offer it. Uh, whether you wish that my rants would be a little long-winded, sorry, I've heard that one a few times. I'm working on it. I'm trying. Or suggestions for movies, anything of the kind. Uh, we can't promise we'll necessarily get to it. Life has kind of gotten in the way of some of our ambitions a few times over over the years, but we'll try. We, we, we do listen and we do, we, we're genuinely gobsmacked by the fact that anybody tunes in to our little ranty hour of amateurish fun every couple of weeks. Uh, but in terms of what I'm working on, if you would like to talk to me, talk to me directly, offer your thoughts, criticisms, 
um, insults, what have you. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Comer Codex because that is also where you can find updates on my blog, comercodex.wordpress.com, which after a long break since Thanksgiving is about to be coming back tomorrow. In fact, I was just finishing tomorrow's blog a little bit earlier tonight. Uh, also coming up in January, on a date somewhat to be determined, I'm going to be making my debut writing for YesWrestling.com. I'm going to be writing a column called Eight Match Tag. It's going to be my uh, probably, I imagine, bi-weekly playlist of eight matches centered on a favorite match type, a favorite promotion, a favorite era, a favorite performer. And actually, my very first one is going to be looking at the eight essential matches that make up the ballad of Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. Uh, you're not going to want to miss that. Again, that's yeswrestling.com, and keep an eye to at Comer Codex for updates. Also coming up in January, I'm, uh, fpgnews.com is returning, and with it, I am coming back to bring you uh, live-ish play-by-play pay-per-view coverage. For those of you who can't tune in to the WWE Network, uh, I am going to be making my grand return to furiously typing insanely detailed recaps as matches happen for this year's Royal Rumble, uh, live from Philadelphia. So keep an eye out there. Uh, pretty much from the looks of it, just about the entire FPG News family is back for this reboot. Uh, myself, the esteemed Stuart Lang, our good friend, our good friend uh, Danielle Cavanaugh, uh, the, all, the <laughs> somewhat controversial but always interesting Darren Ramsey, the whole bunch. We are all going, we're all going to be jumping in there to bring what was a wonderful blog back to life. And otherwise, that's about that's about it, with the exception of um, also might have announcements about some twitch.tv related things on my end coming in the near future depending on how Sunday goes and if I come home if I come home with a certain something in the seat of the car next to me but otherwise love each and every last one of you and don't forget to never dull your colors for someone else's canvas all right um this has been Star Wars Week here on the Rattle Legend Broadcasting Network. We did the Princess Leia comic book trade paperback brought to you by Marvel on Monday on Source Material. We reviewed The Last Jedi on Tuesday on Damn You Hollywood. The Metal Hammer of Doom contributed with their review of Galactic Empire's self-titled album, Galactic Empire. Next week is Christmas. Uh, Jesse Starcher's got a DC holiday special for you on Source Material on Christmas Day. Damn You Hollywood does our last review of the year and for uh, at least another month, month and a half with Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. Uh, if you enjoy watching Robert suffer and me laughing at him, this is the show for you. <laughs> um, the 27th is the Metal Hammer of Doom year-end special. You're going to hear uh, myself, Robert Cooper, and Jesse play some stuff that we did not get to. We went... Almost every single week here, and I think it's the only show that went every single week in the year 2017, uh, almost without missing a week, I think for the most part. 
Um, but even with going weekly, we still missed quite a few uh, albums we wanted to talk about. So we'll play a track from those uh, on the year-end special and you know talk about the year in metal and what we liked, what we didn't like, etc. And then, as I said, Sean and I closed out 2017 with the last show of the year on trial, uh, Robin Williams's Jumanji. So go ahead and check that out. We kick off January... Um, myself and Pat do do a TV party tonight for Fuller House Season 3 Part 2 on January 2nd. And the Metal Hammer of Doom kicks off 2018 with an album from late 2017, Morbid Angel, Kingdoms Disdained. And then, as I said before, we uh, we start going full throttle January 8th and 9th with a pair of 300 episodes. We're going to talk about the comic book on source material, and then we're going to put the movie on trial on the 9th, and then much to Robert Cooper's chagrin, the Metal Hammer of Doom is going to review the new Asking Alexandria. Uh, that's all for now. I want to thank uh, everybody for bearing with us tonight. Hope you enjoyed the show. Court is now out of session. The judge has left the building along with Elvis. Be well, be safe, and behave.